Welcome to Creekside Church. I just want to share a, a couple of announcements, things upcoming. Uh, if, if you take a look at your bulletin, you can see some of the things happening in the month of January. Next week, if you plan ahead, there will be a lunch immediately following the service where we'll have a chance to hear from members of the Haiti missions team that uh, visited this last fall. And so they'll be sharing some pictures and some stories and some of the things that God was able to do uh, during their trip. And I'm sure they will all uh, be quick to share how they were more blessed uh, than the people that they were being used to minister to. But uh, plan ahead next week. There's a lunch after the service. And then in two weeks, we will be having a uh, Creekside prayer night two weeks from today on, on Sunday night. Finally, you know, sometimes the new year is a good time of uh, where people maybe start thinking about ways that they want to uh, minister, things that they want to get involved in in the new year. And I know there's an opportunity for someone uh, who has a heart to work with children. We have a preschool, uh, preschool class that meets on Sunday mornings, and they are looking for an additional teacher or, or more than one teacher. So if you have a, an interest in working with preschool kids, uh, maybe pray about that. Um, I know Debbie Short is someone that you can talk to. And uh, also you can check your email. I'm sure there, there will be uh, some information coming out about that. But that's an opportunity if you're looking for a way to get plugged in. You know, everyone should have something that they're plugged in. And, and that is a great ministry. And you don't even have to be the person who is doing the main lesson, if you're just willing to first come in and learn and, and just help uh, shadow someone else who is helping with the lesson, uh, is a great opportunity. So uh, we're going to continue our worship this morning, but let's before we do that, let's just bow our heads and commit our time to, to the Lord. Uh, Father, we are reminded frequently that we live in a world that is very dark, and um, our thoughts go out to people impacted in the community of Perry uh, this past week. Um, what a tragic and, and sad uh, event. And we just pray that you, that you would provide a special comfort for all families impacted, um, that you would remind uh, hearts that you are the king on the throne. And Lord, there's no hope in this life apart from you. And Lord, we just pray that uh, as we go through our week, that we would remember that we are uh, lights for Jesus in a world that's very dark. And we pray that you would give us opportunities to be an ambassador for Christ. Lord, as we start this new year, we just pray that you would again remind us of your goodness, your grace, and your love, and that you would lift our hearts to the throne this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you, praise team. And uh, invite you to pray with me, if you would, as we prepare to worship through the study of God's word. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come here and reminded that all glory is due your name. I thank you, Lord, that as we start this new year, we are reminded of the, the mercy and the grace of our God and providing for us salvation when we're so undeserving. And I ask now that as you open your word to us, that your spirit would speak to our hearts, that we might come to more fully understand the truth of what it means to be your children, that those who do not know you as their Lord and Savior might be drawn to you, that your spirit would work in them to bring them conviction and bring them compulsion, that they would repent and, and believe. And those of us who know you, may your word speak truth to us that would transform our lives, that we might be conformed more fully to the image of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. My mother-in-law was here this uh, for several days, and we are not normally don't watch uh, network TV, but she does, and so I kind of Jimmy rigged something so she could watch network TV, and so we overheard these commercials, which I don't. I'm very privileged not to have uh, to listen to most of the time. But there were a, a number of political ads and political commercials, and, and if, you're, if you aren't buried under a rock in Iowa, you know we're just being inundated by all of these uh, political commercials. And politicians are promising that they're going to do, if you elect me, I'll do just what you need. Uh, you know, I will do what's best for you. And they make these promises, but... Most often, the promises are not coming from their own personal practice. I mean, they just have no experience in accomplishing what they're saying that they're, they're going to do. As we have been looking at, at the book of Romans, uh, we, uh, and we're kind of uh, rewinding, so, okay, we, we had the Christmas thing, and we did that like from December 17th until, you know, and then something different last week, and now we're back in Romans, okay? But in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21 through verse 31, Paul assured us that, the, that God's gracious gift of righteousness to all who believe in Jesus is consistent with and it's not in contradiction to God's word, uh, what he said. And, and, and then, in chapter 4, uh, he's bringing the receipts, uh, so to speak. That's a, you know, a little thing. He's Okay, he's, he said things, now he's proven it. And uh, just so we kind of get backed up to speed, in, in verses 1 through 25 of chapter 4, he's completing a section of Romans. Uh, I want you to see if we, I don't know if we have that slide, maybe we don't, uh, didn't get it to him. But anyhow, so in Romans chapter 1, yeah, there we go. Romans chapter 1, 1 through 17, we see the priority of the gospel, okay? Then in chapter 1, beginning with verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, we see the pressing need for the gospel. Paul starts out saying, the, the gospel of Christ, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. It's a priority. But why is it a priority? Well, he kind of 
steps back and says, no, you need to know why we need the gospel, and that's because we're all messed up. We need good news because we're bad news. That's 118 through 320. And then in chapter 3, beginning of verse 21 through chapter 4, verse 25, it's here we talk about the provision of the gospel. We have this need, now he's providing for it. And that is justification by grace through faith plus nothing. And so he began in chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 12. Uh, uh, he's trying to appeal, Paul is, through chapter 4, to the reality of Abraham's faith. And the reality of Abraham's faith is intended to, to substantiate and to illustrate and to punctuate that justification by faith is the central truth of the Bible from beginning to end. It's not some new invention that Paul threw at the Romans, uh, but it's something that began back in the Old Testament, and it's not contrary to God's Word. So we looked the last time I was speaking in Romans chapter 4 at verses 1 through 12. And in Romans chapter 4 verses 1 through 12, we saw that Paul made the case for justification by faith apart from the works of the law and apart from religious ceremony. And now, verses 13 through 25, Paul offers two lines of reasoning, okay, to prove that justification for all, that's Jew and Gentile, is by faith and not by observance of the law. So, he's talking to this mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles. It's not by works. It's not by religious ceremony, i.e. circumcision. And it's not by the law, by keeping the law. And so we begin in Romans chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. I'm going to read through verse 25. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one somewhere in a seat underneath of you. Or, and I'm reading from the New American Standard. The text is printed up there, so if you're following along in a different translation, you'll know some differences. We'll try to tease those out if we can. Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants and that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace, in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead, and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed in order that he might become a father of many nations according to that which he had, has been, had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had, had, what had, he had promised, he was able to also perform. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned. As those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who has delivered up 
because of our transgressions, or I think the ESV says, delivered up for our transgressions, and he was raised because of our justification, or for our justification. And so we have this passage, and it's, a, it's just kind of a continuation of Paul's ramblings in the beginning of verse 1 through uh, verse 25. But we first of all see the first line of reasoning is this. We will learn here in the text that Abraham was justified by faith, not law. And Paul offers two insights. First of all, there's the declaration of justification by faith, not law. And then, uh, then he goes on after that to defend justification by faith and not the law. So this declaration begins in verse 13. And he starts out with four. For the promise. Uh, well, he's continuing the argument from chapter 3, okay? And the argument from chapter 3 ends with, look, the law is for all, or the justification by faith is for all, and that doesn't come in conflict with, in fact, it supports what's in the Old Testament. And so he's just continuing that argument, okay? Justification for all who believe is consistent with the Old Testament. And then he says God's promise. So for the promise, what promise is he talking about? Well, that word, specifically that word promise, the promise, occurs in verses 13, 14, 16, 17, and 18 of chapter 4. Reference is made to the promise in verses 20 and 21, not using the word, but talking about the promise. So this idea of promise is pretty important in this section. The promise he's talking about is the promise God made to Abraham back in Genesis, beginning with chapter 12, verse 1 and through verse 3, but it, it consists of this. It's a promise to Abraham and his or his descendants in the form of a land that he promised them in Genesis chapter 12, in the form of uh, descendants that would be more numerous than the stars, Genesis 15, verse 5, uh, blessings, particularly and especially the blessing that in Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed, that's chapter 12, verses, verse 3. And what's interesting is, Paul says that, that statement that in you all the nations of earth would be blessed. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says that was a preaching of the gospel to Abraham. So when God spoke to Abraham, says in you all the nations of earth will be blessed, he was speaking the gospel of salvation through faith in Christ to Abraham. which is wild, and that connects with the, the last part of the promise, which was for a seed that would be a descendant of Abraham, the Messiah, the one through whom not only Abraham, but every else, other person would be justified, made righteous, is the seed that was promised in Genesis chapter 22, which Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 16 and 19, we're going to look at it here, in Galatians chapter 3, 16 and 19, says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as, uh, as, as one would in referring to many, but rather as in referring to one and to your seed, that is Christ. So the promise to Abraham in Genesis 22, 17 and 18, that he would have a seed, was a reference to the person and the work of Jesus, so that when he was given this promise, in you all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That was the gospel preached to him that salvation came 
through faith in his seed, Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. So there it is. That's the promise he's talking about, all right? And the whole world has come to him through it. So Paul summarized, but wildly. Now, read in the text with me, because Paul does something which I think is it kind of is wild. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants. Now, that's all I just got done describing to you. This land, this descendants, the blessing of in him all the nations will be blessed, this seed. How does Paul describe it in Romans? He says that, uh, that he would be heir of the world, which is kind of an odd way of putting the promise, but that's how he summarizes the promise. He would be heir of the world. What's he talking about? Well, what's an heir? Who is an heir? Who's the one who gets the inheritance? The children. A child. He's talking about and using terms referring to the heir, that he would be an heir and his descendants would be an heir, uh, children of God. That's the promise, that they would be children of God. And what's wild is in the original Greek, if you look at verse 13, here's how it reads. It says, for not through the law. That's how it begins. For not through the law. The not through the law is what's emphasized. And it's not through the law that Abraham or any of his descendants or any other person becomes a child of God, an heir. But it's through righteousness that comes by faith. That's my translation of, of, of verse 13 okay so it's not through the law that you become an heir the promise is fulfilled but it's that through the through righteous the righteousness of faith that Abraham was not saved by obeying the law which interestingly enough if you think about it, historically it would be impossible because Abraham was long dead when the law came <laughs> so how is Abraham justified by the law when the law is not even written when Abraham's alive which is kind of wild because you think the Jews at the time Paul's writing are thinking, well, Abraham's justified by the law. Well, that's kind of stupid because Abraham was dead when the law was written. But he's justified, he's not justified by the law, which wasn't written yet, but he and his descendants and every person after him became an heir, a child of God, by means of the righteousness graciously, graciously, graciously bestowed upon him through faith in God. And the thing that strikes me here, one of the things that strikes me is that he was counted righteous. And we, we went over this in chapter 3. Which means God declared him to be righteous on the basis of faith. And this counting of righteousness means that he had nothing in and of himself that would warrant him being declared righteous. Do you know that even if we died for our own sins, we couldn't be declared righteous? Our sins are not, uh, if we died for our sins, it's not a sufficient sacrifice. It's only Christ's sacrifice that is sufficient. Um, I saw a picture uh, recently of the pyramids. And, you know, it's like, how were they built? We don't know. But we do know this. I think we could say this. They weren't built using cranes that use hydraulics and hydraulic hoses. Why not? Because hydraulics weren't a thing then, right? 
Uh, we, at least we don't think so, unless aliens built the pyramids, which I don't think they did. But the, we don't think there's hydraulics weren't, weren't a thing. So if they weren't built with hydraulics, because they weren't invented yet, there had to be some other means. If the law hadn't been given yet, there had to be some other means whereby Abraham was declared righteous, and it's by faith. Abraham's faith looked ahead, as we mentioned before. In faith to Christ's sacrifice, in the same way that our faith looks back on Christ's sacrifice as a provision for sin and the basis for his salvation. Now, we don't just say that he looked ahead in faith uh, in a vacuum. If you have your Bibles, you can turn back or look at John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, verse 56, uh, Jesus is speaking. And Jesus is speaking in John 8, 56 to the religious leaders. And he says this to them, the Jewish people. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it. Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Jesus. And he saw it. Now, how that happens, I have no idea, okay? I'm not going to stand up here and say, oh, I got it, I got it all figured out how, Jesus, how Abraham saw Jesus through the corridors of time looking forward. I don't know, but I do know this. Jesus said he did. And so he looked ahead in faith to the person and work of Jesus. So that's the declaration. Now the, ju- the defense of justification by faith, uh, not, not the law, is in, begins in verse 14. And the first reason is given by the introduction with this word for. For. Here's the reason why. Abraham and anyone is counted righteous by faith, uh, not adherence to the law. If it's only those who keep the law, this is the argument, i.e. the Jews, if only those who keep the law are the, are the children of God, uh, then faith is void and the, the promise is nullified. There's no need for faith. If you, only, if you get to be justified by keeping the law, then there's no need for faith and the promise that's predicated on the basis of faith is empty. Um, think about it this way. Maybe this will help, maybe it won't. You're working in a job, and your, your boss says, hey, if you work hard, you will advance in the company. If you just do a good job and work hard, you'll advance in the company. But what you realize is that nobody who works hard advances in the company. In fact, the only people who advance are the people who know somebody important. Now, you're, you're, you're chuckling because many of you are in those kind of jobs right but here's here's what i'm trying to get at is that the promise that you would advance was based upon what hard work but if hard work is not the reason why people advance then the promise is, is is nullified and it's empty and vain if if getting a right standing before God is on the basis of faith. That's different than law. If it's only by law, then we don't need faith. And the promise that you need faith to be justified is a waste. That's what Paul's arguing. If my hard work in advancing my company is meaningless, 
then the promised reward for working hard is worthless. Galatians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul put it this way. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. That is by means of a promise. Verse 15, second reason. Why? Justification by faith is not on the basis of the law. Or the justification not on the basis of the law. Verse 15, he says this. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there a violation. Like the way Warren Wiersbe, and this is kind of a paraphrase of Warren Wiersbe, okay, uh, said, he said, the law wasn't given to save us, but to show us that we need to be saved. So, justification, being declared righteous, salvation, is not on the basis of the law, because the law was never intended to bring about salvation. The only thing the law did was show us that we need to be saved. That's what he's arguing, and that's what... Paul is arguing in the text. You see, the, the law brings about wrath, is what the text says. Now, how does it do that? By alerting us to our unavoidable sinfulness. In Romans chapter 7, which we're going to get to, Lord willing, we're going to see that we're, we're just kind of dead in the water when it comes to sin. It's like, we're going to sin. And we don't have a choice uh, because that's our fallen nature ever since Adam and Eve. We are going to sin. And the law, all the law does is show us that we are going to sin and that we do sin and how we sin and that the consequence of that sin is God's wrath and judgment. Now, uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, a familiar verse. The wages of sin is death. Okay. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. Romans 3, 9 and following, which we've already talked about. None righteous, no, not one. We deserve God's wrath. All right? And, 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 but we're ignorant of our sinfulness. And I'm back in Romans chapter 4 now. If you look at verse 15, without the law. Where there is no law, neither is there a violation. So the law alerts us to our unavoidable sinfulness, of which we're ignorant apart from the law. The law comes in. Why? So that we know that we sin. And we know that we deserve God's judgment. I may have told you this story. I, I can't remember. So if I did, forgive me. If you haven't heard it, that's good. But when I was in seminary, first year in seminary, I got a parking ticket. Because I had parked my car with the driver's side tires next to the curb. Which means I was parking against the flow of traffic. Okay. I got a ticket. Didn't know that was a thing. You know? Without the law, I didn't know I'd sinned. But with the law, I was made aware of my violation and I suffered the consequence. I was punished for it. You see, the law illumines sin and then we're punished for our sin. The law's deficiency illumines our need for a deliverer. That's the purpose of the law. Paul says it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Um, Therefore, the law has become our guardian, or our, uh, I like the better word, tutor, okay, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by law. 
No. Justified by faith. All the law does is show me I'm a messed up sinner in need of a Savior. And you too. We learn that Abraham was justified by faith, not the law. And then he continues on and we learn that Abraham was justified by faith. And so are we. And so are we. And Paul answers two questions in the next section, verses 16 through 25, to convince us that Abraham's justification by faith is the pathway for ours as well. That Abraham's justification by faith is the pathway for our justification just as his was. And it's by faith. First of all, what's the question? Why justification by faith? This is the question he answers in verses 16 and 17. For this reason. For what reason? Because the law of the law's sufficiency in revealing, but deficiency in healing our wicked hearts. See, because the law is sufficient to reveal, but insufficient to heal our wicked hearts, we need something else. And it's, the text says, verse 16, For this reason it, justification by faith, is by faith. Justification is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace. In order that salvation may be in accordance with grace as opposed to works. Romans 3.28 For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Apart from the works of the law. Now additionally, uh, God, God's gracious, God graciously accounted Abraham's faith as righteousness. Why else? According to verse 16. For this purpose, to guarantee salvation to all of Abraham's offspring. All of his spiritual offspring who, like him, believe in Jesus Christ. And he lists who they are. Jewish believers, those who are of the law, and Gentile believers, those who are of the faith of Abraham. Now, that's in the text. Okay, that's verse 16. I'm just kind of summarizing it. Who are of the faith of Abraham, their spiritual father. Now, this is exactly what Paul has already proclaimed, that we are we're all descendants of Abraham. He is our spiritual father. We all believe. Look at verse 22 of chapter 3. Okay. Uh, 322, he says this. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who, of those who believe, for there is no distinction. Chapter 4, verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness of faith, this is Abraham did, which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of us all who believe without being circumcised. Abraham is the father of us all. He's the father of us all because he believed and we are saved and regenerate and justified and righteous and saved in the same way he was, through faith in Christ. You see, Abraham was an ungodly guy. He was a pagan guy. From Ur of the Chaldees. And he was messed up, and he couldn't be rescued by his own actions. All right? He was saved by faith. And he's the spiritual father. He pointed the way of salvation for everybody who's messed up, which is who? Everybody. He, painted, he, he portrayed and, and, and was the, the one who led the way, spiritual, Jews and Gentiles. 
Because that's what you see. Romans chapter 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God and salvation to whom? To all who believe. The Jews first and the Gentiles. That's everybody in the world. <laughs> You're either a Jew or a Gentile. <laughs> so everybody's there. We're all covered. You see in chapter 3, uh, uh, verse 30, he says, Since indeed God who will justify the uncircumcised by faith and the the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith as one. We see it in chapter 4, verse 11, which I just read. So next, Paul answers another question. What is the nature of the faith that justifies? So he talks about we're justified by faith. What is the nature of this faith that, that justifies? And so first we're looking at some requirements of this faith or characteristics of this faith. Some commentators would say they're characteristics, and that may fit better, but uh, I like ours, so it's requirement of, of faith. And we see in verse 17, it says this faith came to him. Oh, it, it was promised. I didn't finish my thought there. It was promised uh, by, uh, it was proclaimed by Abraham or by Paul that we all are children of Abraham by faith. But it was promised and fulfilled. If you look at the end of verse 17 or the middle part of, I made you a father of many nations have I made you. That was a promise made. So, Paul proclaimed it, and God promised it, that Abraham would be the father of many nations through faith. The requirements. First of all, uh, A, God was the one in whom he believed. He believed in God. Abraham's faith was not in faith. Abraham's faith was not in his own ability. Abraham's faith was in God Almighty. In the one whom he believed. Now, who is this God he believed in? The text tells us, at least describes him in two different ways. It says he's the God who raises the dead. In John chapter 5, verse 21, uh, the scripture tells us that for just as the Father, Jesus says, the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. This is the God in which we, whom we worship. He raises the dead. That's the kind of God he is. Now, why would Paul use those words in speaking of Abraham? He raises the dead. Why did Abraham need to believe in a God? Well, a couple of things come to your mind, maybe. Maybe it's Genesis 22 where he offers up Isaac and he believed that he would raise him from the dead. That's a possibility. And, uh, but I think probably it has to do with the fact that he was thinking, as we're going to read about in verse 19, uh, that, that his body was as good as dead. And Abraham's and, and Sarah's womb was dead. And so he was, point, he was picturing the, 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 God's resurrection power, which points ultimately to that resurrection power proven in the person and work of Jesus. It was, he, ra he was raised from the dead. And then secondly, and he calls into being that which does not exist. This is the God that Abraham believed in. This is the God who all Christians believe in. The God who created everything. In speaking that which didn't exist, speaking of creation. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the hosts thereof by the breath of his mouth. He spoke and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Psalm 33, verses 6 and 9. He spoke the world into being. Boom. It's there. This is the God 
that we worship. This is the God in whom Abraham believed. So I had a thought. When in this fallen world, our headaches and our heartaches and our hardships are too great for us to bear, let's be mindful. It's probably because our God is too small. Because we worship a God who raises the dead and who speaks into being, creates things that are not in existence. Our God is too small. Secondly, B, in hope against hope, he believed, Abraham believed. Uh, now, hope is desire for something that you want to be realized. I, I, I hope that, you know, I hope that my kids will uh, still love me when I'm an old, crotchety guy, you know. I hope, I want them to do that, you know. But that doesn't make it happen. So he hoped against hope. Abraham was uh, about 100, and uh, Sarah 90, and he's supposed to have a child. Through him, all the nations of earth would be blessed. You're going to have a descendant. You're going to have a son. Wow, is that really going to happen? And Abraham held on to unreasonable hope that he might become the father of many nations, just as God promised him. And in Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, so shall your descendants be. Hope against hope. I think I told you a story about Frank, Frank Drown, uh, in the jungles of uh, Brazil, or Ecuador, he was. And, and he, he had, he'd located, a, he was working in the jungles as a missionary. And uh, he had located a hydroelectric power plant that the city of, uh, I think it was Dubuque or uh, Davenport or Bettendorf or somebody, had, had scrapped. And so he had it flown down to the airport in Quito, Ecuador. And he was praying... No promise given, but he was praying, God, will you send us a C-130 transport so we can load this thing onto it? Because, I mean, we're talking several tons, this, this hydroelectric plant. Give us this C-130 transport so that we can fly it in and airdrop it into the jungle. <laughs> what kind of craziness is that? But, oh, yeah, we're just going to, you know, this is going to C-130 transport. It's going to show up at the Quito airport and fly your, uh, your, your hydroelectric plant and drop it in the jungle. And it did. God did it. Because that's the God who we serve. He's the one who raises the dead, and he's the one who brings things into being that aren't in being. And this is the God in whom Abraham believed. Is it the God in whom you believe? Well, sometimes. You know, and me too. You know, I mean, sometimes I'm, I'm I'm there, and sometimes I'm not. Well, here he was. He 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 was in hope against hope. He he did it, and then read verse 19. It goes on. He says, and without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, which we've kind of talked about before. Without becoming weak in uh, faith, see, now Abraham had never seen God raise anybody from the dead. Abraham had never seen God create anything that was not already in in being. But he believed God able, was able to do it. And we know he believed God was able to do it because we've read Genesis chapter 22 when he was about to offer up Isaac and he believed that God would raise him from the dead because that was the son that he is being promised in Genesis 17 that's already then becomes the reality 
that he's offering him up in Genesis 22. Now, the big question, well, the big question, but a big question is, why had God waited so long? See, in Genesis 15, 5 and 6, he'd said, you're going to be the father of a multitude of nations, and then 25 years later, it still hasn't happened. In Genesis 17. But God had intentionally, I think, delayed fulfilling the promise for 25 years until both Abraham and Sarah, their procreative abilities, as we're looking at in verse 19, were humanly depleted. I mean, it was humanly impossible for them to have kids. But I think God did it to deepen their faith and to demonstrate His power. You know, sometimes you're in a pickle, you're in a tough spot because God wants us to grow in our faith and he wants to demonstrate his power to do what we in our humanness think he can't do or he won't do. Or, you know, it's just not humanly possible to do. This is the way God works. Ultimately, Abraham looked beyond what was humanly possible to a God who was able to do the impossible, which is interestingly enough exactly what he told Sarah in Genesis 18. And told Abraham, is there anything too difficult for for me? Seriously? Fast forward a little bit into Luke, and you have Elizabeth (laughs) and Zechariah. Is anything too difficult for God? No, nothing is too difficult for him to take care of. And so then in verse 20, Uh, leads us into D, this saving faith doesn't weaken or waver. In verse 20, he says, yet with respect to the promise of God, he didn't waver in unbelief. He didn't waver in unbelief. Now, some of you are already there, but and you've been there for a while, and I, I, I struggled as I read through this passage, and you see all of this declaration of Abraham's stellar faith. And here I'm saying saving faith doesn't weaken or waver, and Abraham's reaction to what was repeated, the repeated promise. So the promise was given in Genesis 15, 5. Then in 17, God comes back to him and says, hey, look, you know, it's been kind of a long road, you know, and you, you tried that little thing with Hagar and, uh, and, uh, and, and Ishmael kind of come. That's not it. You know, your, your servant uh, guy, dude, in, in Genesis 15, no, he's not the one through whom your descendants are going to come, but it's through Sarah, and, uh, and that, that's the way it's going to happen. And uh, so when he repeats that in Genesis 17, 15, the response of Abraham seems to contradict what Paul is declaring about him right here. Now I want you to look at Genesis 17, 17. Okay? In Genesis 17, 17, this is it. Then Abraham fell on his face and he laughed. And he said in his heart, will a child be born to a man a hundred years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, give birth to a child? Now, in Genesis chapter 18, Sarah laughs too at the thought. So how do you put together the fact that that Paul is saying in verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief with the reality that you read in Genesis 17, 17, that he laughed in 18, 14, I think it is, that, that Sarah laughed, 18, 12, that Sarah laughed as well. Well, I don't know exactly, but here's my shot, okay? Um, it seems to me that, that Abraham's 
that Abraham's faith in God was considered unfaltering by, Abra- by, by Paul, I'm sorry, despite his struggle. He had a struggle with what was the, the realities, like we all struggle with the reality of what's going on, okay? The struggle with a promise whose fulfillment was delayed. His difficulty uh, was not considered doubting God. It was just, I, I don't understand all this. And so sometimes when we don't understand, it doesn't mean that we're doubting necessarily God. It's just that we, 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 we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. So what do we see happening? What's interesting to me, and this is how I explain it, that he, he really was unfaltering ultimately, and, and, and in the end, he really didn't falter in his faith, even though he may have stumbled a little bit along the way, because God graciously, and patiently brought clarity to the promise. I want you to look at a few verses. Uh, we don't have time to look at all of them, but I want you to look at, at beginning with verse Genesis, Genesis 17, 19, and there's several verses here. But God said, this is after verse 17, when Abraham's laughing, he said, no, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you shall name him Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him and as an everlasting covenant for his descendant after him. Then we look at verse 21, and uh, I think, yeah. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Then we look at chapter 18, verse 10. And in 18, verse 10, He said, I will certainly return to you at this time next year, and behold, your wife Sarah will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent of the door, which was behind him. That's when she laughed in verse 12. But then we have verse 14 of Genesis 18. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. A son. And I see all that, and you look at verse 20, and it says, What happened to Abraham? He grew in faith. So, in spite of his struggle, which was not considered his, his difficulty, was not doubt, but confusion that brought, God brought clarity to through this further explanation, and he grew in faith. And he didn't waver. He believed what God, God, godly faith doesn't know all the details. But we trust God anyway. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And the conviction of things not seen. Well, think about Noah. (laughs) This is a dude building a boat in the middle of a desert when it's never rained before. (laughs) <laughs> you you are loony. Now he didn't have all the answers. He just built he just, every every day for what, probably 120 years. He, he's coming and and slathering tar on what he's put together, and he's building this thing, believing God for something he had probably never seen rain. I think about Peter. And the apostles, they're told by the religious leaders in, in Acts chapter 4, you can't speak anymore in this name of this Jesus dude. You know, you got to shut up about Jesus, which is not too far off from where we're at now, right? In many places in the world, it's like, you can talk about God all you want, just don't talk about Jesus, right? And here's what they, here's what they said. It says, we must obey God, 
rather than men. And then it says a little later in Acts chapter 4, they kept right on preaching and teaching Jesus. Like, you can't speak about Jesus? Yeah, let me, hear, let me tell you about Jesus. Oh, they didn't know all the details. They didn't have all the answers. They didn't know what the ramifications were going to be. But they kept on doing what God had called them to do. That's all he asks us to do. And sometimes we waver in the sense that we're like, oh, I'm confused. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we don't believe God is able to do it. It's just a struggle sometimes. That's how I understand it. may not be completely there, but this is what we have. And then, find, then we see this. In, in e is unswerving faith is one of the best ways of giving glory to God. This text says he gave glory to God. He was giving glory to God. We preached uh, through 1 Samuel. And remember the story of Goliath? It's not all about slaying your giants. Okay? It's about glorifying God. David's courage was for God's glory. He wanted to defend God. And David said this. He was there because he wanted all the earth to know that there is a God in Israel. David's courageous faith sought and his victory brought glory to God. And as we live by faith, that's what happens. It's like God gets glory. I got a phone call from a friend of mine who he and his wife were getting ready to leave just as before Christmas. They're headed to a uh, a country which we would say is in the 1040 window, which is a country where it's closed to the gospel. To go and do ministry for our Father. And you know what I was doing? I was like, praise God. Man, what a, what a, I mean, that just like, like, I feel like a non-Christian right now, you know. Like they're stepping out in faith, and, and God is getting the glory. And when we live and walk by faith, it is for His glory. And that's what Abraham did. He, he, he lived by faith. That's the kind of faith that he, we're talking about here. And then, lastly, if you look at verse 21, under the requirements for his faith, and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able to perform. And again, I really believe that his being fully assured is part of the process of those 25 years. He came to be fully assured. And even after the, the kind of the assurances that God's given him in the passages that we looked at, he became fully assured. And once he was fully assured, he was like convinced that God is able to perform that which he promised. God is able. You see, we read in the Bible, he's able to do more... He's able to do more than we ask or think. But remember this, he's never able to do less than he promised. He's never able to do less than he promised. Assurance of God's ability gives us confidence, like it did Abraham, to cling tenaciously to uh, his promises. Now we see the result of Abraham's faith in verse 22, which is the point of the old chapter of verse 20 of chapter 4, and that is accounted to him as righteousness. God graciously counted Abraham's unswerving faith as righteousness. 
was counted as righteous. Now, again, Romans 3.28. I maintain a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. This is not a work. Abraham's faith is not a work for which he gets credit. It's a response. It is his reception of the gift that was offered. Okay? It's, it's, it's not a work. Whereby a sinner is justified, faith is not. It's the reception of the gift of righteousness. It's the gift of righteousness. It's nobody deserves it. What we deserve is condemnation. What we receive by faith is salvation. And until we come to the realization that there's nothing in and of ourselves that we can do to earn this salvation, we will never, I don't think, fully appreciate the gift that's been given. It's us. I got a gift for Christmas. Okay? Now you say, well, that looks like a horse, right? It is. Well, it's a horse because it's a picture of uh, Ford Mustangs, okay? Every, every month, you know, I get to look at a, a different picture of uh, uh, Ford Mustangs, you know? And it's because I like cars, you know? And, and I have a Ford Mustang, okay? So it was a gift, graciously given to me. I didn't deserve it, didn't earn it, nothing to do. Salvation is a gift, is graciously given by God. And Abraham shows the way. And then we see the reach. It wasn't just Abraham was declared righteous and it wasn't just written down that he was counted righteous because of his faith. Now I'm kind of paraphrasing if you look at verse 23. Now not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him. What? No. But for our sakes as well. See, God counting Abraham righteous by faith proves that we too are saved by faith in God's provision for sin through the sacrifice of Christ. And this is important, folks. He believes in God, but he believes in the God who raises the dead and who does what we have never seen created before, but he did it in the work and the person of Jesus. And it's our faith in this God who provided this means for our salvation through what Christ did on the cross. And Galatians 3.29 uh, tells us that if, if, if we are in Christ, we're children, heirs of, heirs of the promise, uh, and children of Abraham. That's kind of a paraphrase. The only means whereby a rebellious sinner is counted righteous is through belief in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With a heart we believe resulting in righteousness, with a mouth we confess resulting in salvation. It's the only way. Out of utter helplessness to become righteous on our own, we, like Abraham, must trust in God's promise of forgiveness through Christ. Verse 25. He was delivered up because of our transgressions delivered for ESV says and he was raised for or because of our justification I like to say it this way and I think it's an accurate translation he was delivered up on account of our sins and he raised again in order to bring about our justification see we're not saved unless Jesus died and rose again from the dead on our behalf how is that possible? Or why, why, is that, why is that necessary? God raised Jesus from the dead as the one who voluntarily delivered 
was delivered up. He was voluntarily and unjustly delivered up. The, the scripture tells us that God the Father delivered him up in Romans chapter 8. And it says that Jesus agreed to it. Okay. In Ephesians chapter 5. And he did to it to suffer for our transgressions. And uh, Jim eloquently quoted uh, Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, for those who weren't here uh, on the Christmas services. But here's verses 4 and 5. However, it was, for, it was our sickness that he himself bore. And our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assumed that he was, uh, had been afflicted and, and struck down by God and humiliated. And then it says, however, it was... Uh, that's, no, yeah, again, I was going to say that was only verse 4. But he himself was pierced for, through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. He'd suffered in our place. He died for our sins. I was told to be quiet in the back seat of the car. My sister and I had been tormenting each other, believe it or not. Uh, silence. And then the silence was broken. Steve, stop it! My grandfather's hand reached around from the front seat and swatted me on the knee. I was absolutely innocent but I was punished for my sister's offense. Now that's kind of a funny story, but what Jesus did is not funny. Every one of us deserves the punishment that Jesus bore, but he did it for us so that we, the weight of the world sin upon him so that all who could believe would be graciously, marvelously, gloriously saved from condemnation, from separation forever. And he was raised for, in order to bring about our justification. Resurrection is necessary because the resurrection showed God accepted the sacrifice as sufficient payment. And the resurrection is necessary because it secured our pardon. It secured us with, with purpose in life. It secured the presence of the Spirit of God in us. It secured our prize of an eternal inheritance in heaven. It secured it. The resurrection is absolutely necessary for all of it. And if you're here this morning, whether I don't care whether you're a, a religious pretender or you're just outright rebel, you're hopelessly destined to a condemnation apart from your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ's death on the cross as the payment for your sins and your acceptance of what he did for you as the payment you deserve that God would give you. And unless you turn from your sin and trust in what Christ did on the cross, you too will suffer an eternity apart from God. And I don't want that. And neither should you. And turn from your sin and like Abraham, take God's gracious gift of righteousness through faith in Christ. And if you're here this morning and you know Jesus, wow, just give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the God above for gloriously rescuing you when you deserve judgment. Nothing, nothing in and of ourselves would, would merit his, his glorious forgiveness and we have it. 
Scripture tells us from beginning to end, salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. It's a gift. Not because of what we do, but because of what God has done for us. Uh, and don't brag about it. Um, you know, it's not, not for you. And, uh, and let's tell others about it. It's the glorious good news. And as we, as we break bread and, and drink this cup, you know what we do? We just reiterate, we reemphasize that it is Christ's sacrifice that made it possible for us to be included in the kingdom of God. And so if you know Jesus, uh, search your heart and give thanks. And if you don't know Jesus, then trust him so that you can be part of his family and partake this as a remembrance of what he's done. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the work of Christ. I thank you for the example of Abraham who was saved by grace through faith in Christ. And I pray that each of us here this morning, listening online, would make sure that we are your children through faith in Christ. And those of us who know you, teach us to give you thanks, to humbly share this glorious good news with all around in Jesus' name. Innocent and holy.